Wooders Network. Hi, this is Stephen Turek from the Free Wooders Network. Today we bring you another episode of Ego, the 80s geek out. We hope you enjoy the show. of Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast. My name is Ian Clark, and I am joined, as always, by the Lenny to my squiggy, Mr. A. Bradford Anderson. Brad, how are you this morning? I am well. It's early morning on, on Pacific Coast time, but I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, you were like, you're like, oh, let's do it at like 9.30 in the morning. I was like, that's 6.30 for you. Are you sure you've got this math right? I'm also insane, so yes. <laughs> well, do you do you get up early to? Um, I'm trying to even think because I have friends here that are big Premier League fans. That's it. that's why I scheduled us in the morning because uh, <laughs> okay. Manchester United and Liverpool are playing right after this podcast. So, <laughs> all right, I figured there yeah. was a reason for it. I oh, didn't know yeah. if you were had a biking adventure planned for the day or if it was soccer related. But, uh, the biking uh, was yesterday. The footy is today. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Yes. So, all right. So that makes it all make sense now. Yes. All right. So, yeah, we are going to talk about today some of our favorite sort of action adventure type shows from the uh, television shows from the 1980s. Before we do that, because I always like to throw Brad a curveball, and I like to talk uh, a little bit about uh, a little bit about go. our. Well, I like to talk about a little bit about our lives too. Um, <laughs> Give people a little more sense of who we are, uh, but I, I you had quite a uh, quite a life change within your your living situation with a whole bunch of new stuff. Tell me about this new couch. This new couch uh, from IKEA is possibly the second greatest thing I've ever purchased besides <laughs> my Tempur-Pedic bed. It, you know, the Tempur-Pedic bed was a uh, two o'clock in the morning. Why am I up at this hour? Infomercial uh, upsell, which was a no-brainer, and this couch was. I initially was going to go uh, with the the uh, the cloth version, but the pleather version was so much cooler for the black tempo of my video <laughs> recording equipment TV. So it was it was it was a natural progression for me to land on this, and it converts into a bed, which makes it even more amazing. So I've got this gold mine of a couch that actually fits the apartment uh, versus the as I called it, as you probably well saw, the behemoth which occupied my entire living room in an L-shaped fashion with an ottoman. I had no room in my apartment. Now I have uh, enough room to uh, have a dance studio in here, uh, which is fantastic. So, right. Well, and we, we all know how you've really longed to have that dance studio in there. So, <laughs> You would not believe the mirrors are coming in for <laughs> next week. I've got a new attitude. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I, you were posting stuff on Facebook. And so was it tough to put together the Ikea thing? Did you end up with Strange extra parts? Enough, the only the only thing that I um, I had a, the right amount of parts. I ended up with two extra screws, which I did uh, <laughs> the next day identify where they were supposed to go, because sometimes those directions, they don't they are there. But you have to kind of it's like a mystery you have to un, unfold. And Fortunately, I had my buddy Greg, who uh, lives in the complex, because they do explicitly state in the directions, there will be two points where you need a second set of hands <laughs> to help flip the device so you don't snap the cross beams that hold the damn thing together. Oh. So it, uh, it worked out, and strange enough, I think it took maybe an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes, but that was because oh, that's not, bad. not at all. And not, not that I'm patting myself on the back, but I did a pretty darn 
<laughs> good job getting this put together based on everyone else's panic, you know, panic posts or conversations that we've all, I'm sure we've had. Yeah, putting together that dresser drawer was a nightmare. You know, it's like, no, I, I wanted to avoid that. And I actually did. So I'm very lucky that it came together uh, very well, very, very quickly, or to nod to an 80s TV show. I love it when a plan comes together. Well, <laughs> this actually came together perfectly for me. So <laughs> Nicely. I think I only have one Ikea item that I put together, and that was uh, my glass display case I have my painted miniatures in. And I, yeah. I don't remember that being an issue. I think that was pretty easy. So. Right. So that's good. I mean, they, Ikea is huge. They, they must be doing something right. So. They're doing something right. And I think, you know, even though they've probably take their customer feedback probably fairly seriously if people have indicators of issues with, you know, interpreting the directions. But I think, you know, this thing, it was 29 pages and it's, you know, the thing is like seven feet long. So 29 pages to put together uh, <laughs> a seven foot device in 29 pages. Uh, plus the hermetically sealed. I was worried. Initially, it's funny you bring this up. I was worried that the pillows were not included. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, I, I get this thing delivered. It's two boxes the size of human coffins, <laughs> and there are. I can't find the pillows. The pillows were hermetically sealed in a underside pocket that wasn't easily revealed to me when I when I disassembled everything from the boxes. You rip the bags open. The pillows inflate. It was quite. <laughs> oh, it was so quite they were like vacuum sealed. To say the least. <laughs> That's funny. I saw a video yeah. on Reddit about that. It was like something that came vacuum sealed like that, and they cut yes. it open, and it just went. Phew. I think it was a bean bag. Yeah, it just yes. was like in a little tiny like <laughs> bag, right. and then it just. Don't put your face near where you cut. <laughs> air is probably whatever's going on chemically, you know, chemically compressed air, not not healthy to breathe in. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's like opening up a, a tomb in uh, Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> Spores. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nice. Well, yeah, I saw. I was I was impressed with the new uh, the new couch Thank situation. You. Yeah, it, yeah. And, and to say life changing is putting it lightly. It is. It is. I've fallen asleep on it on a couple nights. And you know, and just to give context to our listeners, you know, prior to my other couch, which I was finally able to sell after a year and a half, you know, my last week of Christmas break, I was basically watching TV sitting on a weight bench, and that is a nightmare for your lower back. Yeah. So yeah. this was a blessing in disguise when it finally arrived, and I put it together. So. <laughs> Nice. Well, that's great. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm fascinated by your uh, your life because it is such uh, such a polar opposite from my own. Because uh, you know, not, not just geographically, but right. because obviously I'm um, you know I'm on the East Coast. You're on the West yeah. Coast. I'm I'm a married guy with kids. You're you're single. I, you know, there's you're you're tall and thin. I'm short and fat. There's <laughs> we're two and all. Shut up, Emily. You look great. <laughs> We're, but we're we're polar opposites, so I was like, oh, this new couch thing is is kind of cool. But but you know, in the and just living wise too. I mean, obviously you're yes. in a, you know, you're in a uh, an apartment, whereas yep. I have, um, uh, you know, we live in a uh, in a house in the middle of the woods, and you're in a city, right. you know, setting. So all that stuff is uh, is interesting to me. It's amazing so. how, but how we sync up as human beings despite our locales, <laughs> right, exactly. and situations. <laughs> Exactly. I've adjusted my microphone setting, so hopefully that didn't just screw up the podcast. Nope, but it's all good. listeners will know. So, okay, all right, enough about furniture stuff, but I, I that was a, a new adventure that you had had. Um, yeah, but we are here to talk about uh, some of our favorite 80s TV shows, and I figured we would, um, and Brad was willing to go along with it, break it up a little and maybe do another show later on sitcoms, because when 
we started to talk about this, it was sitcoms that kind of came to mind for me right. first because there are a lot of sitcoms from the 80s that um, that I enjoyed a lot as a kid, and there are some I've revisited as an adult. So I think that one's ripe for uh, for an episode of its own at some point. But So we figured we'd do some action ones because we certainly had a, a very – wide array both in quality and quantity of uh action shows in the 80s but there were some really good ones and so we each picked out a few that we wanted to talk about and i'm gonna let brad start with uh, one of his yeah so one of the more probably less well-known tv series that was only on for one season um was called bring them back alive and it starred bruce boxleitner uh from later fame uh, babylon five um Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Scarecrow and Mrs. King, you know, another, uh, and how the West was won. So, I mean, he certainly Tron had a, and, and Tron as well. He was very, an in-demand actor back in the early 80s. Um, and I found out through, you know, doing some research that, you know, the character that Box Leitner plays um, on the show, uh, Frank Buck, I mean, how much more of a masculine, <laughs> uh, masculine name is that? Um he uh, was actually – they based the TV show, um, uh, which was about 17 episodes running from 82 to 83, um, off a real uh, hunter, collector, kind of like the, the type of guy who goes into the jungle uh, to get animals for like the Barman Bailey's Ringling Brothers Circus. So the Frank Buck character actually was a real in existence guy, 1884 to 1950. Uh, he was the uh, – and this is actually hit close to home learning this – he was actually the first director of the San Diego Zoo here. Um, oh. So basically, um, through his exploits in Southeast Asia and India, collecting animals, transporting animals, and hunting animals, he was also a hunter, um, he was the first director here of the San Diego Zoo, which I thought was kind of neat. So his exploits in all, all throughout Southeast Asia were captured uh, lady, later for a short-run film series um, uh, of the same name, Bring Him Back Alive, a radio series. Uh, and then many years later, um, the uh, television networks decided, hey, we're going to put this into an actual live-action TV series um, called Bring Him Back Alive, which was the name of the, the original TV series and film. And the Bring Him Back Alive, initially, it's kind of an interesting story. A lot of the films um, that starred the original Frank Buck were essentially putting and pitting animals uh, in fights to the death against one another. I'm not sure how it was staged. It seems like they were largely staged based on what I've read from the original stories. Um, you know, putting a tiger uh, versus a panther or a tiger versus a python, and where the tiger barely or narrowly escapes uh, death from the clutches of a, a python that is just, you know, uh, coiling together to crush it. So when the actual TV series came out, um, and I thought this was fantastic because this also uh, bodes into one of the uh, 80s classic films that we've also spoken briefly about. Raiders of the Lost Ark in 81 definitely had a major influence on why I like this show so much because the Frank Buck character is very much like Indiana Jones. He's an adventurer, um, not necessarily in the, in the archaeolo archaeological sense, but he basically goes into the jungle to hunt down animals. He goes up against a wide array of localized and international villains. Um, and the show, based uh, technically, uh, as we know, uh, is based out of Singapore in 1939. So you've got the 
cusp of World War uh, in uh, parts of that part of the world where Japanese is exp- are Japanese are expanding their empire by going into regional islands and so forth. So Singapore was a you know port city, um, still is, and his character, uh, Box Lightner's character Frank Buck, is based out of there. He has a sidekick as well named Ali, who uh, ba- the actor Clyde uh, Kutsatu, who's also looking into his filmography and his uh, TV lineage. He was in MASH. Uh, he was in uh, Starfleet Next Generation. So he's been on um, an incredible side role supporting cast. And he's still alive, you know, um, and he's of Japanese descent. So he made the perfect sidekick to the TV Frank um, Frank Buck, basically, in the, in the sense that, you know, he was very much like uh, Indiana Jones's short round. So they would go on adventures together uh, in the jungle, saving animals uh, in in animal catch pits from hunters and game hunters. And he, oh, the, the series, episode one, which I was luckily able to find online on YouTube, which is broken down into two episodes, you know, his marked statement uh, when he def- defeats the, uh, I think it's like the South African boar hunter who's trying to hunt a tiger. He stands up to the guy after disarming him from his rifle and says, you don't kill them. He goes, no, I bring them back alive. So it, it kind of has this really unique <laughs> tie-in where you don't always hear these uh, the, the the movie or, or show title listed in the, uh, yeah. So it was, it's good. So, they, you know, he has a good supporting cast of characters, um, you know, uh, around him that are both good and bad. He has a, um, Gloria Marlowe, who is the U.S. consul, is the American representative in Singapore at the time. Um, the Indian Sultan of Jopur uh, character, uh, known only as H.H., is a uh, Indian royalty who also is an adventurer along with him that helps him on these you know, exploits into the jungle to track down information, uh, to find rare animals. So it, you know, it blew my mind in the sense that, you know, the parallels to the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I think they were capturing that wave that was sure. happening in the early 80s, uh, which made it really interesting um, because, you know, that also translated not only to my interest visually, but also when you're playing with your action figures in the 80s, like we all did, be they G.I. Joe's or Star Wars, you are outside concocting similar adventures that you kind of see on TV. So the um, it had multiple levels of connection to me, which I thought was kind of fantastic. And the and it had you know a, a main nemesis villain. Um, I was going to say there must have been a, a bad guy that was like. There's a bad stuff. guy, and yeah. he's very much similar to the uh, the uh, the Nazi or Gestapo SS who has his face melted off in front of the Ark. He's the the, the character's name uh, is G.B. von Trugo, so he's a Germanic character. Wears the nemesis white outfit, you know, the black tie, white outfit. Sometimes has the the fedora that that kind of goes against the pith helmet that Frank Buck wears. So you've got the kind of the the Nazi versus the American uh, big game hunter, and you know, and they you know the first couple episodes they were they're definitely there was focused on this film that had been taken and stolen, which I think was also showing uh, the Jap- Japanese initial occupation of some parts on the outside of Singapore. So his job, you know, Frank Buck was to retain this film undeveloped, get it to the allies to show that the Japanese were on the cusp of expanding, which could mean also, because uh, we well know that in 39 World War II, it started in Europe. So the theater that was happening in Southeast Asia was a little more subtle 
you know, until, you know, the Japanese officially entered the war against the United States, you know, um, in 1941. So it, it basically was a unique preface to major global events, which they well tied in throughout the series of him going up against, as I mentioned earlier, not only local villains and, 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 um, and syndicates, but also fighting off Japanese aggression everywhere he possibly can through his adventures in the jungles and so forth. So, yeah. Huh. So that is one that I absolutely, I remember the name. I, yeah. I don't think I watched it. And you said it was only 17 episodes. 17 so. episodes back yeah. in 82 into 83. So yeah, it was early on, you know, came and on. went. Yes. I was just going to say, so, and you, but you rewatched episode. I mean, how does it hold up? I mean, yes, it holds up to a younger me. Um, <laughs> right where I'm filled with awe and wow, this is so very much like Indiana Jones and why wow, I love this. He's, you know, yeah. In the, in the first episode where he first meets Gloria Marlowe and that eventually becomes his kind of love interest um, in the show, he uh, and Ali are, you know, scurrying along in a very uh, Walton's styled old Model T type Ford. Somehow Gloria Marlowe has driven off the roadway is struggling in her car and uh, alligators or crocodiles are coming <laughs> after her. He randomly gets out and has Ali throw him a rescue rope. And it's perfect in the sense that it shows human flaw is not perfect. So he basically is doing the lasso and you hear the, he throws it. He's trying to land it on a branch. He misses the first time. And she says, you missed. So the, the humor of it, it was not lost on me because it was really funny that, you know, you think an adventurer is going to have a, almost a near flawless experience. He's got alligators coming at her um, while she's standing on a very slippery car top. He misses the lasso on a rope and you end up seeing the tree that it's that the lasso is hooked to. It's not realistic. That thing would have snapped with two people. So he swings <laughs> out, yeah. gets her off the top of the car, swings back. They, you catch a very quick look of the tree and it certainly would not have held the weight of a male and a female in their late 20s, early 30s. So it was uh, it was interesting to see. But I, I would say the does it hold up? It, it was fun to revisit. Would it be something that I would watch all 17 episodes of? Probably not. Yeah. But I did I did check in on uh, episode the second episode where his his uh, the HH character, the Indian uh, Sultan of Jaunpur, um, where he had, you know Buck actually goes in on a mission against the Japanese to rescue him. It was plausible. They, it was very, which also ties into another one of my shows, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, you know, the he's his aversion to violence basically was was very well pronounced on the show. So Frank Buck basically would disarm characters through very quick, not quite martial arts moves, but hand to hand combat moves. Um, he has a gun, doesn't always use it for violence, but in a very much a team fashion, would blow something up on the side to distract rather than destroy the human being. So I thought that was kind of a neat little angle because that was kind of a very much thematic in a lot of 80s TV shows was the violence showing of potential violence, but not actually showing the death of people. So sure. I think that was a, a unique thing, which I didn't fully realize back then early in the eighties for this show for bringing back alive, but look, revisiting some of the episodes now I'm saying, wow, they, they were definitely, you know, throwing the villains over the camera. So it's like, you know, you know, not actually showing the death of them, but showing them getting injured or infirmed, but not actually getting murdered, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> a lot of TV shows today, how violent they are. So uh, you can see 
why some people have issues with what's going on today in, in the world versus the way it used to be in, in the 80s where it was, you know, aggression, but not like flat out, you know, ultra violence. So right, right. <laughs> nice. All right. That's yeah. Good pick. That's yeah. not one I was familiar with, but I can absolutely see why that would have captured your yeah, imagination yeah. back then. It hit every point on the line of the adventurer. And I think that, you know, ties into the young spirit of us as we're, you know, formulating what we like and don't like in life. And you get to see this guy running around the jungle, rescuing animals and people and putting himself in perilous situations and, you know, very knowledgeable uh, about what the environment is. But you could also tell in a couple many of the scenes, I was surprised how they were able to do the alligator scene because a lot of the other scenes look like I'd seen those in other 80s films, which I'm pretty <laughs> right. certain was the case because they were definitely filmed in Hollywood backlots, you know, spinning it as Singapore. So, yeah, they, they, they did, did a pretty good job. But I would have to say some of the foliage, uh, being an adult now looking at it, definitely was not something you would find in <laughs> Southeast Asia. So. <laughs> it's funny you were talking about kind of shows, movies did it as well, but TV kind of tried to ride that wave of – yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark's popularity, and it made me think of one that uh, I, I think was also very short-lived, but I remember loving it when I was a kid. I haven't revisited it, but do you remember Tales of the Golden Monkey? Absolutely. That, and that was, I was going to make mention that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that I was... think – and again, I haven't revisited it, but if I, I – I know it was very Indiana Jones-esque, and if I yes. remember right, he was a pilot. He had he like was, a plane. Like a decommissioned cargo pilot. Okay, yeah. Similar fashion um, – and, and had like a dog sidekick, maybe, or a monkey, had a maybe. Dog he had a monkey. Kick, yes, no, a dog sidekick, and as I recall, the, the dog had a, a patch over its eye. An eye patch, that's right. Yeah, oh patch. So God. that was a unique thing. And I remember that very much him escaping many very perilous situations in the pontoon airplane that he would fly yeah. in and fly out, taking cargo and adventure. So, yeah, that was another one. I think that was on, I think, roughly the same time, like 82, 83, but had a slightly you know, shorter lifespan than I think 17 episodes. So yeah. Yeah. I remember it being short lived. Um, cool. All right. Uh, yeah. well, one, one that we both agreed we needed to talk about, which was a must watch every week for me. It began in 1982 was Knight Rider. Yes. And, uh, I've, I've never been a car guy and obviously the, you know, Knight Rider, the, the draw was kit the car because it was right. such a cool car and it had its own, uh, you know, artificial intelligence in it. Um, but it just, the, even though me not being a car guy, just the, the, the car itself was cool. And, uh, something interesting about it, this, that show was created by Glenn Larson who had created Battlestar Galactica. And of course there's the similarity between the, the red light on the front of kit and the red light on the eyes of the Cylons. Yeah. That was that was on purpose. He just liked that design so much. And awesome. later, I'm going to I'm going to talk about something else in one of the other shows, but I'm going to talk about another show that Glenn Larson did and something that he pulled from Battlestar Galactica that I found incredibly interesting on rewatching Battlestar. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Knight Rider started in 1982. Uh, uh, David Hasselhoff, of course, the uh, the main character and ran from 82 to 86. And um I'm sure I have not rewatched this. I am sure this thing does not hold up. <laughs> I think I've, I've maybe seen one episode in the last 20 years by accident. And I think it was on one of those uh, TV 80s rewind type things. And it was 
it was it was tough. It was tough to watch it, you know, in, in modern times, knowing what we've been now been exposed to technologically and what they show on TV these days. I yeah, it was it was not as a fond a memory as it was back when we were kids. <laughs> yeah, but that that one, I I mean, everybody watched that when we were absolutely. Kids. That was, and I All remember having the matchbox points. car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had the matchbox car, and I remember the there was the bad car, which I think was called Car, right? Wasn't yes. it like K A R R? Yeah, yes. they had had to have the bad guy, and it seemed like it. T- I don't know when they did that, but it seemed like it took them a while to get to that. It's like it's like, come on, that's that should be a no brainer. There should be a an a recurring bad guy. Car. A recurring bad guy quickly, and I and it's funny. I found, and when we get to another one of my shows, that it I. I it sometimes takes a while for these storylines and plot lines to kind of really find a focus and or bring in an actual nemesis, a recurring character who is the, you know, the arc nemesis and, you know, main antagonist. Um, yeah, that's a really good point about the them not bringing in quickly where it should have been there from the beginning. Right. And, of course, he had the, uh, you know, the the different love interests. I think there were a couple. Um, he had uh, the, the guy that drove the... Um, the what was it like a sort of like a, a outfitted 18 wheeler yes that type of thing to, yeah yeah that the car that kit would you know ride in and when it wasn't deployed and and all that so yeah there's a ton of ton of stuff uh and, and boy one thing i really remember that that opening the music oh yeah the, that whole opening to that show would immediately capture you when you were a kid because oh, it was it was <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and i think it had a voiceover too like explaining like who michael knight was and yes yeah, yeah that was super cool um so yeah we figured we needed to talk about that one and and i know they redid it i don't i know it came and went so it must have not been very good but they yeah. did reboot it a few years ago um but uh yeah that was that was absolute can't miss tv as a, as a kid you know you know nine ten years old totally. um and why don't I why don't I dovetail into another one real quick because you've already mentioned it and then I'll we'll let you get back to to yours but there was yeah. one that we agreed that we should talk about and you touched on it and that's the A team. Yes. Um, that was I I think if you were to ask kids of our age you know people of our age that were kids then to name like their favorite like action adventure type show uh. I, th- I think there are two that would come up and i think a team is one and we'll talk about the other one but a, a- team i think i think probably seven eight out of ten people would mention because oh, absolutely yeah i think again like knight rider i think even more so i think i think everybody watched the a team agreed yeah i think because it had such a you know it had a much broader cast with like really kind of the the personalities you know Hannibal Smith. I mean, how much more of a, a rugged leader name do you have? You know, B.A. Baracus, you know, Face, you know, you've got all these, you know, and then and then obviously the, the crazy Murdoch character. So, I mean, they literally had a enclave of um, an amazing adventure team. And, you know, and the intro to that show and the song was just another thing. I mean, I mean, the 80s, 80s, you know, song producers and directors getting the, the proper tracks to open up these TV series, phenomenal, and would capture it. I mean, you would look forward to the theme song and the intro of that every week simply because the music is enough to lure you in week after week. Yeah, and and something that just occurred to me too, obviously Knight Rider, the car is the thing, but all of these other shows 
had a cool car or a cool vehicle, and that seemed to be very important back then. Obviously, the right. van, the yeah. the eighteen van is iconic. But then you think even back to the seventies, Starsky and Hutch with their, I think it's an El Camino or a Torino. Yeah. I'm not a car guy, so but I, I, that was a super recognizable right. car. Obviously, the General Lee and the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. Um, you know the the eighteen van. The, these vehicles seem to kind of right. be designed to be. A, a symbol for the show Absolutely. and uh, certainly yeah. that that van was too it was a cool looking van um but uh very formulaic show you know right. the a team uh is hired to help someone in need you know they're kind of like these robin hood characters uh wanted for crimes in vietnam that they didn't commit um right. you know pursued by a, a you know the, a government entity and Lance Legault as I think his name was Decker the bad yes. guy colonel that was after them colonel is Decker. fantastic in this show and um, and he will talk about it later because I'm going to talk end up talking about Battlestar Galactic even though it was in the 70s but I have tie-ins <laughs> later but he he played a cool character on a couple of episodes of Battlestar where there were these vaguely non-human uh, tribe that was on the the battle start well on the on some of the other colonial ships called Borellian Nomen, and um, he was the leader of these guys. And these guys were badasses. They had like these laser bolos, and they help um, they help uh, the, oh, oh shoot um, uh, Baltar. They help the Baltar, the human oh, yeah. traitor. They help him escape at one point. But anyway, there are a lot of ties to these shows, and one of them is is. Yeah. Um, uh, Lance Legault, who played uh, Decker on the A-Team. Uh, so A-Team, I actually have seen recently the, and again, you mentioned it, like there's those, there's like MeTV and Cozy. There's yeah. all these, there's all these channels now that, that cater to these old shows and I love it. And right. so A-Team came on one night. It was like a, like nine o'clock on a Saturday night. And I was very surprised that it actually captured the attention of my my 13 year old son, and we watched an entire episode mm. um, where they were helping these uh, this Native American family. Um, and yes, it's very formulaic uh, and and predictable, but it was also entertaining enough to capture the attention of of like I said, my son who you know right. was video games and all that type of stuff. He act, he we sat and watched the whole show, and I was very surprised that again, not it's not amazing award-winning tv but no. it was good escapism for an hour yeah. you know what i mean so oh, I, I was surprised at how much it held up in in that regard so yeah um, no that definitely had some longevity to it and it obviously launched some of the careers or expanded upon a lot of the careers of some of the you know the the participants um especially for mr t um you know as ba baracus that was certainly he became more prevalent in uh hollywood cinema and and ultimately you know other parts of television for making cameo appearances, but yeah, definitely a great, great series. Very robust character lineup, great one-liners, um, and you know it's kind of like the you know the soldiers of fortune that are there for you in a pinch if you can find them. So. <laughs> and, and people, listeners would be yelling at me if I didn't make the obvious connection. Obviously, uh, Starbuck and Face Man, yeah. <laughs> Dirk Hello. Benedict. It, right. Yeah. Face in in uh, a team was obviously Starbuck and Battlestar. Yeah. That's obviously the the huge connection. And they even made the funny nod to that in the show. I don't know if you remember. They used it in the opening credits where he, as Face, walks by a Cylon and kind of pauses and looks at him. I don't know if you remember I that. I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of a fun in joke uh, that they did. Um, but yeah, that was a show that uh, I I loved that show. And I remember having they they made 
action figures, yeah. but it was kind of weird how they did it. They made like big, like eight inch size ones that looked like they're, you know, like they did on TV. Mm -hmm. I was never a fan of the huge oversized figures. I had a few like Masters of the Universe ones, but for the most part, and I had some Migos when I was younger, right. but I, I never liked that because I wanted stuff all to be the same size. So I could, I could use them all together if I wanted to right. Star Wars with GI Joe with, you know, right. with whatever. So I didn't have those, but they made three and three quarter inch a team figures that came with the van. It was a whole Oops. set. And yeah. I got that one Christmas and the van was awesome. The, the roof came off so you could actually put the figures inside. Nice. It was a, it was a great, set but what annoyed me was they put all of them all the main characters that came with uh four didn't come with there were there were a couple of different female uh yeah. uh co-stars that were in the show um off and on but um so it came with the four main characters hannibal face murdoch and, and uh b.a baracus but they were in army fatigues which oh, was very right. strange and in yeah. different colored ones like i, I remember murdoch was in like orange like bright orange and it was just a strange choice but yeah. they did they did make a-team figures and I, I did have them but um that's awesome yeah that was such a it was such a cool show and, and a show that i just remember you know you'd go to school the next day and talk about it because everybody had watched it and uh so yeah that was one that felt like a you know we we had to talk about so yeah why don't we move into one of your next choices what else you got I got this little ditty called MacGyver, and <laughs> and I was shocked when you told me. I did not watch MacGyver. That you did not watch MacGyver. I don't know how that's humanly possible. Based I, on, I, I it makes me wonder what else might have been on at the same time. Or, yeah, <laughs> I don't know because I mean that that's the other thing too. And we've talked about this with you know my wife and I have talked about it with our kids about how. When we were kids, everybody watched the same shows because you right. only had – you had three main networks and PBS. Right. That yes. was it. There was yeah. a little variation but not a lot. Like there were there were the big shows and right. everybody watched them. And for right. whatever reason, this is one that – and you would think I would have liked it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, no, you would have. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no question about it. The, the – you know, it um, – Angus MacGyver. You know, that, that – his name – That's his first name? I didn't it, even know that. I think, and I read up somewhere that he had a, it was either Leslie or Terry was the name that they were going to try to, it was, it was a name that did not really fit MacGyver. Because MacGyver, how much more of a masculine, again, there's that masculine, rugged adventurer name, MacGyver. Doesn't ever go by his first name, he just goes by MacGyver. His 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 main handler, um, Don S. Davis, who also appeared with him later on in, in the Stargate series as General Hammond, um... He played basically um, uh, his part of this this international organization based out of Los Angeles called the Phoenix Foundation. Phoenix Foundation basically was kind of like a pretty much like what Oscar Goldman's foundation was for Six Million Dollar Man. Goes up against international terrorism, human trafficking, drug smuggling. So they were pretty much kind of like the Interpol, where MacGyver was the lead agent. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, 85 to 92 was the run of, of the series. Um, and as you well know, as you mentioned, the same thing with a lot of other modern-day TV shows. There was a reboot done in 2016. I have yet to catch any of those episodes. I'm kind of a little bit an elitist when it comes to – and a fanboy of Richard Dean Anderson who played the, the role of MacGyver. Kind of – after probably doing this podcast with you today, I'm probably going to want to check out a couple episodes just to see <laughs> – you know, is it, does it have the same kind of, you know, 
a motive energy that kind of attracted me to the adventure going to different parts of the world going up against you know villainous networks and individual networks and and drug cartels and arms smugglers but to kind of give context to MacGyver's character you know he was an engineer a fabricator a scientist very um um main another very similar to the Frank Buck and bring back alive very um aversion major aversions to violence he will look to disarm or disable rather than harm someone who's coming up against him does not like guns doesn't carry guns i know he was thrown guns in a couple episodes and he kind of jumbles it and fumbles it and throws it away (laughs) he would rather use a log or something in his immediate environs uh to protect himself versus using a gun to take out the enemy yeah another another tv show which showed you know not quite full-on violence, but you get to see explosions and you get to see people getting kidnapped, um, you know, injuries happening. Clearly, that, that was a lot, but you never actually see people dying um, in at least the, the first number of seasons. Um, and sorry, that, that reminds me, too. We didn't touch on it. You kind of touched on it before. That was the that was the the A-team was absolutely known for that. Things exploding, yes. guys flying literally over the yes. top of the camera. And that, right. that seemed to be a big thing in the 80s. That was that's and, very interesting. And, and that carried into the MacGyver thing. You know, there would be, you know, hand-to-hand combat. You would basically see, you know, blood, but you would never actually see someone dying from a knife wound or stab wound. You would see them slash, but you wouldn't actually see them, you know, um, uh, you know, dying as a result of that. Um, connections to my personal life, which, which I thought was, you know, he um, was very big on manipulating his immediate surroundings to either escape a perilous situation um, everyone jokes, you know, and still has the ongoing joke. Oh, I can MacGyver that right, right. Times. using a paperclip using gum. He had a token Swiss army knife. You know, that was one of his big things. And that, and that relates to my own life because my dad had the, a very similar Swiss army knife, which I still have in my possession today, which very much, uh, was his main primary escape tool. You know, y- you can look at, um, uh, almost any situation, a locked room that's going to explode. Yeah, a, a very similar situation to, you know, James Bond in Moonraker when they're beneath one of the uh, space shuttles going to go off and they have to escape. He, MacGyver can get you out of almost any situation by putting his head to it. He can create a bomb or an explosive device with just very meager little bits and pieces that he can find inside the room that it is in. He also drove a Jeep Cherokee for a, a number a number of seasons. My parents drove a Jeep Cherokee, so there was a lot of real life associations to what I was seeing and you know and transpiring on the screen in front of me. And I thought also the fact that he was so you know into creating gizmos and escaping situations very much resonated with me in the fact that you know I love kind of what you know in, in the seventies into the eighties what James Bond represented you know the superhero agent working for an organization, going to various parts and defeating crime and, and, and villains. And in many ways, you know, there were a lot of parallels between his super agent style kind of operating very independently um, and a lot of faith being put in him by the Phoenix Foundation um, to overcome uh, enemies, rescue documents, get timing devices for missile launch codes. So it was very much superhero-esque in the sense that he... Um, was a very down to earth human being. You know, he looked, he, people say he had a mullet. I don't <laughs> fully agree. 
that the haircut was a full on mullet. Here's what, here's what I'll say in yeah. in defense of that. Yeah. Richard Dean Anderson, Canadian, uh, yep. when when they would put together these charity hockey games, mm. was known to be a very good player. He's yeah. got hockey hair, not quite he, the mullet, right. but he's got hockey hair. He has Wayne Gretzky hair, <laughs> yeah, a little yeah. more flair. So it's not quite a mullet that we that we know with the sixty forty part in the front, <laughs> right? Or, right. Or, uh, Business in the front, party yeah. in the rear. It's it's actually very reminiscent of what um, Mel Gibson had in the first Lethal Weapon. Exactly, and very much like Sting's haircut throughout the Synchronicity yes. Tour. Very similar. So all three of them definitely had the very similar hairstyle. So to go as far as to say that they had mullets, eh, it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that you bring up a good point. You know, uh, the opening scene has MacGyver uh, of, of every episode um, when they announce his name, Richard Dean Anderson. They have him in his hockey outfit. So regularly on the show, he basically, you know, um, in the opening sequence, he is comes up to the sideboards and you know does his you know quick stop with his hockey stick in hand and he's dressed. So he's throughout the series playing at times recreationally um, hockey, which obviously, as we know, um, is one of his major fa favorite pastimes in real life. So they were able to tie that into the episode. Um, he had an arc nemesis who appeared throughout the series, not necessarily always in tandem episodes, one after the other, but um, the character, uh, again, how much more villainous of a name can you get? And it also ties into the A-team, but spelled differently, Murdoch. Murdoch was his main nemesis, um, played by um, musician, actor, producer Michael DeBar. And you oh, know who? Okay. Yeah. And sure. Michael DeBar ended up replacing um, Robert Palmer in the, the Power Station. So basically, the band, the Power Station, went after Robert Palmer left. Obviously, he hadn't passed, but he left the band. Uh, Michael DeBar stepped in uh, to play uh, that lead singer role, got a, got a good voice, definitely hit the notes. And I think one of his big claim to fame was the uh, Live Aid concert that he played with the Power Station um, back in 85. So that was, um, you know, he played with them off and on, um, uh, the, the Power Station, but, you know, more well-known for his acting endeavors and kind of playing villainous characters. But he, as the Murdoch character, Michael DeBar would be, I would call him a sadist assassin. He was very hell-bent, very much like Blofeld was in the James Bond series, so there's a lot of parallels about trying to take out MacGyver in any possible instance. You know, you, you get a sense from the Murdoch character that he's very good at his job. So his, whatever he's doing, if he's assassinating somebody, if he's kidnapping, if he's making something, you know, destroying something, he's very good. MacGyver is the only person who seems to be able to stop him from any of his negative, um, you know, evil endeavors, basically. So when they go head to head, it's a, it, it is a, a thug, uh, thug match of two guys going going in the ring, going the full twelve rounds, and Murdoch um, works for the or the organization. Uh, I think it was called Homicidal uh, International Trust or HIT. Yeah, I was so going to say it has to be an acronym, right? <laughs> so it is an acronym, very much like Spectre was for James Bond. So I, I like, I definitely enjoyed the lesser version of what Spectre represented in the, in the fact that they called it HIT. Um, and him being the main, you know, antagonist throughout many episodes of the series, either leading a syndicate against MacGyver and MacGyver inter intervening and stopping uh, whatever from going down. Um, but the other thing that I, I, I liked about R Richard Dean Anderson's character as MacGyver, he was definitely an artisan. You know, you, you, you get a sense from his character and the development of the writing throughout the entire series, highly intelligent individual as the character is portrayed by uh, Richard Dean Anderson, um, always... You know, has a thinks very logically, and I and I, I think that I, I that 
tuned me in how logically he looked at a situation. They could be in the most perilous of situations. He will come up with a level-headed idea of how to get people out of um, any given scenario. And I think that kind of took the action hero to a different level in, in many ways. Because, yeah, because sometimes, you know, I don't think we're going to get out of this alive. You know, he would never have a negative way of looking at a situation. He would find the crack in the wall that can be exploited to make a an explosion happen to have them blow through and escape through a side wall. So, you know, MacGyver, and he also, you know, they, they showed it throughout the TV series, you know, played guitar on occasion. Obviously, you know, hockey segments were, were very prevalent. Um, and he was also a painter. So you get to see him, MacGyver, as his kind of more passionate side as opposed to the adventure team side of, you know, painting. And I thought uh, one final tie into the MacGyver series, which was another big thing for me in the 80s, huge, you know, reader um, of adventure novels in the 80s. And um, you're probably familiar with it, and I hope you are. Um, uh, the writer Don Pendleton, uh, basically. I know the name, but I don't. John Pendleton wrote the, the he wrote multiple book series, kind of like very much James Bond's meets MacGyver esque characters. Mac Bolan. Oh Mac sure. Bolin, yep. There you yeah, go. Yeah, Bolin, I know that name um, for sure. Yeah, the Executioner, and yep. Mac Bolan also ran a um, his adventure team series of books that Don Pendleton also put out was called Phoenix Force. So the Phoenix Foundation in MacGyver and Phoenix Force. For that, I'm not sure if there was any intentional parallels there, but. Uh, for me, it was because I, I was reading both the books, uh, both the Mac Bolan, the Executioner books, as well as Phoenix Force books, which had its own set of adventure characters that Mac Bolan oftentimes led, but sometimes let them do their own adventure without him and him guiding from afar. So those parallels, too, as well, kind of made everything uh, tie in together for me of, of the, you know, the literature side of what I was reading versus what I was seeing on TV. You know, it was a, it was a, definitely a good, many good times there uh, with a very cool character. And then obviously Richard Dean Anderson goes on to uh, in Stargate, and as I mentioned, yeah. Donis Davis, who actually plays um, General Hammond in Stargate. So they, he was the uh, Donis Davis's character. Pete, Pete Thornton was the head of the Phoenix Foundation out of L.A. So I think that was cool to see them in MacGyver and then years later uh, in um, in the Stargate series, yeah. which I thought was very cool. That's cool. Yeah. 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 For I'm again, I'm not sure why I miss MacGyver, but it, it just goes to show how popular that show was because it's definitely in the pop culture zeitgeist. Because as you said, someone yeah. knows if you say MacGyver, the situation or what do people know? And not only that, you had a parody created on Saturday Night Live, MacGruber, ah, which yes. became a movie itself. That right. shows you how incredibly well known yeah, MacGyver is so. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And you know, and MacGyver definitely showed us. You know, it's funny because I, the gum, the uh, the paper clips. You know, I actually learned from MacGyver how to open a lock, believe it or not, uh, with a paper clip. And by lock, I'm talking about the paper uh, towel dispenser in every bathroom. There's a very way that you <laughs> two paper clips. And I tried it out, and it actually it, it does work. So it is possible to get them open with one paperclip. Two makes it easier. One definitely is, is doable, depending <laughs> on if you bend it properly. So yeah. Well, um, there's nothing worse when there's when you're in a public bathroom and there's still paper in there and it won't come out. You can't. So jammed. that's hander. Yeah, and you're banging, <laughs> screaming at it like my hands are soaking wet. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. Well, I, I had two more to talk about. One was one that we kind of both agreed we should talk about. And then the other one was kind of, well, we agreed on both, but yeah. the one that we were like, 
when I mentioned before, I said there are two shows that I think would probably be people's top two that they would pick if you said, hey, what was like your favorite action show from the 80s? One was A-Team. The other had to be Dukes of Hazard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Started in 79, but the brunt of it ran through the mid-80s. I think it went to like 86 or whatever. Right. And uh, that that show, I think, maybe more so than any of the other ones we talked about, was the one that everybody watched. Yep. Everybody watched Dukes of Hazard. It didn't matter, didn't matter, you know, boys, girls, whatever, when we were kids, everybody watched that show. And uh and again, the car, um, very iconic. Um, mm. you know, think the scene a little bit differently today with the uh the Confederate flag on the top. But right. um uh yeah, just and boy, you want to talk formulaic <laughs> that show the that you know. reached a level of formulaic that was you know which which it's funny because t in today's terms, if we were to watch it in its original form, it would be mind numbing. For oh, whatever yeah. reason, we made it through the '80s not being you know completely brain dead as a result of the same <laughs> plot every and week in week out. Have you have you tried to watch it since then? I have seen a couple, not recently, but I have seen a couple episodes. It's um, borderline unwatchable for me. It is because yeah. it's just monotonous, mundane. It's, it's, but, and I hate to say it's it's dumb. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> it, it plays down to yeah. yeah not, not to say that you know that where it technically happens in, in Hazard County um, is Hazard County fictional. I'm assuming. Or is I don't this, know. I think is one i think there might be a hazard county that's the other thing too i never understood as a kid um is like why why is it hazard county who cares like we lived in somerset county we never said we were from somerset county no. but i found out when i because i lived in tennessee for five years when i went to college they do identify by by county down there oh, like tennessee itself from. has something like 95 counties and people would yeah, people a lot of times would not say what town they were from. They would say what county they're from. So, oh, okay. so that finally made sense to me. But um, I think there is a Hazard County in Kentucky, but I'm not sure. And I don't know if they ever stated explicitly no. what state they were supposed no. to be in. We uh, knew it was they, below the Mason-Dixon line. We just didn't know yeah. which state in the Mason. <laughs> and they couldn't cross state the state line because of their um, – because they were on um, – uh, oh, shoot. What's the word for it? You know, they're not – not um ah you you know what i'm talking I, I i hate it when i i do that as i get older now they're I not able to leave the county because yeah. legal or le some legal, legal wise, legal yes. wise okay. yeah that whatever that term is i can't think yes. of it right now it's gonna drive me crazy and i'll yes. think about it but yeah. i'll i'll come up with it two uh two minutes after we stop recording but uh <laughs> anyway they are not allowed to leave hazard county and of course right. cross state lines and that's comes up over and over in the show sure. as they you know, um, and then there was, wasn't there like a state trooper, like Buford T. Justice or something was like their yes. nemesis. Obviously, you had Boss Hogg and Roscoe yeah. and, and, and Enos and everything. But yes, um, yeah. um, something, too, that struck me, I, I tried to watch it. I think it was maybe in college or at some point it came back on TV and I, I tried to watch it and just couldn't. But it struck me as an adult. It was like there are very few people of color on this show for being in the rural South. 
Uh, and maybe it's because I was in Tennessee at the time um, and, uh, you know, it was a little more aware of uh, diversity and everything because obviously we, we grew up in Maine and you right. know, not, not a lot of not a lot of other races or, or people, you know, of color right. around us. So, right. Right. Um, yeah, that struck me. And the other thing that was funny is they actually had a black friend in the very first episode. They had two extra friends. It was Cooter and two other yeah. guys. I can't remember their names. One was a black guy. Okay. And. Yeah. I think they only existed in that first episode, and then they were probably like, "All right, the cast is too big," and for whatever reason, they went with Cooter as as kind of their mechanic buddy. Right. Um, so it is interesting that they. It, it was just strange. It really struck me yeah, watching for, it. For, for being how, a show based in the South, yeah. to not have any sort of, you know, uh, black characters. Yeah, and I, it kind of makes you look back now. Like, I get the whole thing. Well, maybe the cast is too big, but. You would think for contextual, you know, reality's sake for the time period that they were trying to reflect that there would at least be some regular, like either a shop owner or a gas station yeah, yeah. or something. In town. That would, yeah, yeah. That, that they would they would see or whatever. But yeah, so it was very strange. And of course, there's nothing whiter than two white dudes talking about trying to talk about diversity. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um uh, but yeah, that struck me later. as like, wow, that's very, that's very strange that it was, that it was like that. But, um, again, as a kid, you don't, you don't notice. I mean, you know, obviously right. probably if we were, if we were black kids, we would have noticed this right. <laughs> Living in the South. We would have been like, right. Hey, this is this big, this, right. Complete yeah. injustice going on here. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, it, um, just does not hold up well for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but, um, just storytelling and dialogue and all that. But again, you had, you had the iconic car and of course right. the, you know, Bo and Luke were, were major sex symbols. And of course they, Daisy was in there who right. everyone knows what Daisy Duke shorts are because right. that, the that, result of her character. Right. Yeah. That's in pop culture forever. That, that's a pop culture that has lasted every decade since the show's been on the air. It actually has become more and more a clothing, you know, clothing cultural icon even into modern times, so. Yeah, yeah, so that's kind of interesting, too. But So that was one we, f we figured we uh, needed to touch on. I had one more. Did you have any others? I lost track. I had one more, and, we'll, and depending on how we're doing for time, absolutely, I'll, we'll hit you, and then we'll we'll chime into my final one. Okay, all right, so the one I wanted to, the other one I wanted to talk about, and this one's kind of fudging it a little bit. It debuted in 1989, so nice. most of it ran in the 90s, but it did start in the 80s. Um, you know, we were already in high school at this point, and I think that's kind of why this one hit pretty well for me, because it was a little a little bit of a smarter show, uh, and that's Quantum Leap, yes. and, which is, uh, and we've talked a lot about stuff not holding up. I've watched quite a few episodes of quantum leap, either on Netflix or wherever there's some stuff that you're like, eh, it's a little cheesy now, but for the most part, the storytelling in quantum leap holds up very, very well. Um, nice. obviously, nice. uh, Scott Bakula, who, um, was the star who's great in it. You had, um, Dean Stockwell yeah. as, um, uh, Al, uh, who, who worked with him and quantum leap. I, I hope most of our listeners would know what quantum leap is for, but for those that don't, um, Scott Bakula plays, uh, Dr. Sam Beckett. He has learned how to time travel, but in an interesting way, he can only do what's called leaping. He can only leap within to his own lifespan and he actually inhabits the body of another person. And there is generally in order for him to be able to leap out and go to the next person, he has to set something right. There is, whether it's a higher power or whatever it is, there is something guiding him right. and sending him to these people in need. And, uh, 
he'll have like he he doesn't always necessarily remember everything when he first sleeps they they use the term swiss cheese memory a lot uh where right. he doesn't quite remember everything and so he will have to work to try and figure out what the situation is that needs to be fixed or remedied and uh there were some they dealt with some great socialist issues at one point he leaps back in time to the uh, the watts riots Mm -hmm. uh, he leaps into his brother's unit in Vietnam, which is a fantastic episode. Uh, there's a ton of stuff that they dealt with uh, for social issues. And then there were some fun ones, too. There's one where he leaps into essentially like a Stephen King-esque writer in a haunted house in Maine. And you have kind of a young Stephen King cameo right. at the end, too. Um, so there were fun ones like that. But they also dealt with some heavy stuff. And there was also a couple of episodes that dealt with essentially his polar opposite, a, a woman who was leaping and trying to wreak havoc and, and cause problems in people's lives. I don't know if you remember that. I don't the, remember that. Oh, yeah, that's the evil leaper. Yeah, I can't remember what her name was, but um, so that was in there. So it was just a really smart show that dealt that with a lot of cool things. And uh, and again, it, it holds up pretty well. I've watched probably 15, 20 episodes uh, over the last five years or so, and I always really enjoy it. Nice. So awesome. was that one that you watched? Um, I did watch it and everything. I'm trying to like... Distinct episodes, I can't remember them as well, but I do remember um, the, the, the kind of the social note of him the contingent on his basically jumping through time was to end up in solving a problem or helping someone in need. I thought that was a unique way of doing it, but I like how you tied in the, the possible higher power. He couldn't get out of his current situation that he leapt into until he solved the problem. And I always enjoyed when he... Uh, left into women's bodies because I thought, you know, he, you would see him as himself on screen, but then he stands in front of a mirror and then you yes. see the actual characters. But uh, they did that very well because you see him mostly as himself on screen, but if he passes in front of a mirror or a glass or something, he sees himself as the character that he's rescuing or saving, which I thought was really well done how they tied that in for the viewer to kind of make that connection. This is what the person looks like that he's of the body he's in. So that was very cool. Yeah. So, uh, the um, the thing I wanted to touch in that ties in with Battlestar Galactic with this is when he would have Al, Dean Stockwell, would help him, he would essentially come in to, you know, from the, the scientific, the, the lab where they were leap, where he was leaping from, he would be able to kind of come in through a door and only Sam Beckett could see him. So you had kind of that thing where he's talking to someone who's not there to everybody else. Right. They actually, so Donald Belisario, who created the show, and, and Glenn Larson was involved as well, and again, it ties back to Battlestar, um, there's a couple of episodes of Battlestar Galactica where they end up on this planet, and there is a an entity that only one person can see. And it's very quantum leap. And I'm like, when I saw rewatched that Battlestar episode, I said that is absolutely where this part of quantum leap came from. So very it was kind cool. of a neat, um, yeah, a neat t uh, tie in there. So, um, awesome. but uh, yeah, if people have never seen Quantum Leap, I would highly recommend checking it out. Uh, some episodes are a little slow, but there are some that are that are just really, really good, well written uh, television. So yeah, I had to had to throw that one in, even though it was kind of barely came in at the end of the '80s. But, but I also think, too, the fact that it did come at the end of the 80s, that they had had enough time in the 80s to look at what was and was not working in TV. And that, you know, that was a really good sci-fi that had a good theme, good vibe about it. Because, he you know, the situations he was in were, were not always very pleasant at all. I mean, he right. would step into violent situations, you know, um, precarious situations. But him very much kind of like the action heroes that we've been describing – 
has been was able to solve the situation through not necessarily always easily easy means, but then to be able to, for him to get back to the next level where he's going next. So he was that in that in constant flux, and I'm and I like the fact that 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 type of adventure brought in a really good solid sci-fi angle, which was different from any of the other 80s sci-fi stuff that was going on on TV at the time, which I thought was great. Yeah, and they did an ingenious thing at the end of every episode when he would leap out. It would give you like 30 seconds to a minute of the next episode because you would see the character. And a lot of times it would put him right in the middle of something. It's like, oh, he's about to, you know, step in to fly a World War II plane, even though, again, it wouldn't have been set in World War II. But he's he's about to step into a plane that he doesn't know how to fly or, you know, something like that. Or he's about to go on stage and he's jumped into a comedian and he doesn't know what he's doing. So it would make you want to watch that next one because you're like, oh, man, what is going to happen here? It would build up a little bit of anxiety in the viewer because, you know, he felt that because you could see the confusion and chaos on his face of the situation that he's now just been thrust into. And how, like, again, how do I fly this plane? What is the next line? Did I deliver the punchline of the joke? It's like, you know, very unnerving and would definitely pull you in. And, you know, you want to be there right the same date and time next week. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, that was all I had. What uh, what else did you have? The, the last one that I, I have I have to touch on because this one was one that my dad and I week in week week out watched together um, was Miami Vice. Oh yeah, uh, Miami Vice eighty four to ninety. So basically, right in the mid, mid, mid shot of the eighties. Uh, executive producer Michael Mann, uh, known for you know Heat, Last of the Mohegans, main music actors, videos but, too. Did a lot of music videos. Right? Did a lot of music videos as well. Um, you know the the it is the consummate early days of a really modern modern day obviously modern 80s but cool hip uh tv crime uh police drama uh we you, you hip got, is right i remember that fashion wise and everything uh and, don johnson and yep. um oh shoot who's the who's his philip michael thomas philip michael Th- i was like yep. i know it's got three names philip michael yep. thomas um and the reason don johnson came so easily is i just saw knives out um, oh, how is that? It's fantastic, and Don Johnson's really good in it. Good. Um, but so yeah, he, so he, I was thinking of him. But yeah, so yeah, Don Johnson and uh, Philip Michael Thomas, those two guys, fashion-wise, were. I yeah. just remember that people going iconic crazy. fashion for the '80s. Yeah. You know, Philip Michael Thomas always dressed to the nines in a, in, a, in a business suit, very, 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 very regal looking. Don Johnson, a little more flair to his outfits, very much more. Yes, yeah, the the flowing, and I even at one point, you know, and there are pictures of pictured evidence of this, of me on a trip to Washington D.C. dressing like Don Johnson in his kind of flared <laughs> white pants, the the three the three button down shirt in the middle of the short sleeve shirt, you know, showing my slender frame at the time, yeah, very much with the the kind of the casual docksider shoes uh, that he would wear on the show. So I, I was like definitely a, like, a, like a dress jacket, but rolled up sleeves, right? Yes. I remember being part of yeah, it. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, and and Good also for, for trying to pull that off, because there was no way I was going to do it. <laughs> and in that show, Don Johnson, I think had more had more of a mullet than I think uh, MacGyver did, in my in my opinion. So they, you know, or at least it was well more feathered than MacGyver's was. So. <laughs> and we mentioned Michael Mann and his work in music videos, and I remember music was a huge part of that show. Absolutely. Like that was it was iconic within the show. That one of the most uh, you know um, recognizable intros from Jan Hammer was the opening sequence of 
uh, of the show, um, where you get the the keyboards, the guitar, the cigarette boat, you know, going through the you know uh, off the coast of Miami. So it was it was one of those uh, weekly things that my dad and I would sit together in in, in the kitchen, you know, rolling back on on, on the p- the pillows and just kick that back and watch a good solid hour of an amazing hip TV show because everything about it they. The, they drove high-end cars, and you're never quite clear. Did they own them? Were they part of the plan to get them into the criminal organizations that they were trying to bring down? I mean, they did everything. They went after cocaine. They went after uh, you know cocaine drug smugglers. They went after human traffickers, arms dealers. Groundbreaking, really, if you think about it, because it seems to me like they tackled stuff that had not been tackled on a, right? on a cop show, on a drama Yeah, show. right, and they were going big time, and being where, where you know, Miami has a huge Cuban population, so there's a lot of references to Cuban gangs, Cuban syndicates, so there's a lot of that stuff going on, but it went much further than that, because they, they were dealing, uh, going up against international syndicates, and I think the latter-day or more modern-day movies that had... Um, uh, the two guy who the the Irish actor that uh, what's his name? Um, I can't Liam, think of it. Liam Neeson. No, although Liam Neeson, funny you should mention him. You know, looking into this a little further, a lot of careers, early careers, had cameos by Ed O'Neill uh, from uh, Married with Children really? was in the show. Liam Neeson, as we well know, Bruce Willis was in here. Glenn Fry from the Eagles also contributed some songs throughout the, the Chris Rock, Phil Collins. Um, it was just an amazing array of kind of big time actors and and singers had cameos. And I think Sheena Easton, I think was Sheena Easton, played a love interest of, of Don Johnson in one of the middle, mid-season, middle of season episodes who ends up, I think, dying. And that's kind of very much drove him off the off the deep end. But my advice, you know, for me, because it, you know, it combined a lot of things that I you know, obviously us living in Maine didn't really see too much of it. Kind of exposed right. us to a different world. You're not going to see a Ferrari or a Lamborghini driving around our, our downtown hometown in Skowhegan, but you, right. you would more likely to see that high-end vehicle in a region of the country where drug sales like cocaine was at the time in the 80s. You know, you would see that more more prevalently and more regularly than you would see in, in central Maine. But I think they, they touched on a lot of different, you know, which I think was cool looking back at it. It's a lot of social issues. You know, they dealt with it was a very diverse cast. You know, Edward James almost was James Castillo, who was the the police chief in their little office space. Um, you know, and they went up against, you know, they went up against plenty of syndicates, plenty of individual, uh, you know, uh, evil characters. And, you know, they didn't always come out on top. You know, there, there's, I remember one, one handful of episodes where Don Johnson's characters as Sonny Crockett ends up getting amnesia and then becomes a bodyguard, security guard, you know, um, advisor to a criminal syndicate. So that an entire part of that series is, uh, Ricardo Tubbs a trying to find him and b trying to bring him back to himself as you know Sonny Crockett and not the character who who he was taking on the the, the persona of <clears throat> as a person with amnesia and not having any recollection that he's a a, a law officer and you know has a duty to uphold and bring down crime not be a part of it so there was a lot of unique plot twists throughout the entire series. Um, and also they incorporate a lot of, you know, the cigarette boats. That was a big thing. Them them going after villains um, uh, in the Pacific Ocean, uh, rather Atlantic Ocean, and them going uh, helicopters. So they covered the wide range of bigger ticket vehicles that I think were 
started to emerge in the early 80s, but really got big towards the end. Well, and it seemed, mentioning all those things, it, it seemed like it was also going for something that you hadn't seen much on TV, going for more of a cinematic, like almost movie scale feel. Yes, very much so. And I think that was probably Michael Mann's production on it, his lending his his stamp, definitely get, get you get a more wide, broad perspective of what's happening as opposed to a very limited, you know, scene by scene. You get more more of a feel that you're you know exactly what's what's going on from a from a from a distance perspective as a viewer would. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's definitely an iconic show that and, and it and changed television and changed cop shows and things like that That's really and and uh, we talked about the cultural impact too i mean the uh, on fashion and stuff and music even it was uh, a definitely a a touchstone show absolutely was yeah nice all right, cool. I think I think that's everything we had wanted to cover. Uh, certainly, there's a bunch of others, and we, we would love to hear from uh, any of the listeners about stuff that we didn't talk about or if you have your own memories about any of these shows. But uh, uh, I, I think that uh, I think that wraps up what we were going to talk about. There were, there were a couple of things I wanted to mention just to, just to kind of talk about because they were very, like, flash-in-the-pan type stuff that uh, yeah. was very 80s uh, in that it, it – made an attempt at something but it didn't work uh and one, one that comes to mind for me always is uh manimal yes <laughs> manimal that that's that's another one of those underrated often overlooked series manimal i haven't heard that in a while yeah i, I don't think it ran very long and it, it kind of almost had a comic book vibe to it because it was a guy who could turn into i think in the show i can't remember it didn't run very long it was uh, a Black Panther. He could turn into a panther. I think yeah. he could turn into three things on the show. I think it was like a panther, maybe like okay. a hawk, and yes. one other thing. I think, though, I think in the lore of the show, he could turn into almost anything, but it was definitely a budget thing where it's like, look, we got this panther, we got this bird, and, we got this, and that's it. So That's what we're running with. We, we can't yeah. do you know, it. Yeah, and, and, and they're going to go with as many, you know, um, action hero-esque style animals, you know, you're a, a hawk or a falcon or a you know panther would be more applicable to than him turning into a giraffe or a donkey to you know escape a villainous situation. So. <laughs> well, the donkey would have been awesome. Now I got to look it up. I got to see how long this thing. Yeah. Again, we we've t- talked about him before. Glenn Larson. This was a nice. Glenn Larson show. Another um, it ran. Oh my God! It this is how short it ran. You ready for this, Brad? Please. September thirtieth, nineteen eighty three. Yep. To December seventeenth of nineteen eighty three. Oh my god! <laughs> Three months. Oh yeah. my god! Wow. So it was. Um, wow. That Simon was... McCorkendale was in it. He was later in. Was he in Airwolf? I think he was in Airwolf. Yeah, the name sounds very familiar. Yeah. yeah. Melody Anderson was the love interest who would go on to be in. Boy, was she one of the ones on Night Court? I can't remember. There's a lot of this stuff blurs at this point in my in my life. Um, <laughs> and then who was the who was the lead? Oh, Simon McCorkendale was the lead. Okay. Um, I'm just curious about if it says what animals. Dr. Jonathan Chase, a shapeshifter who could turn himself into any animal he chose. Um, yeah, so it was. Uh, yeah, so it was Hawk and a Black Panther in nearly every episode. In some episodes, he would transform into a third animal, such as a horse, dolphin, bear, or bull. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what role or how he would have escaped his situation as a big bull. But and it's funny that, that you bring this up because this that TV show, as short-lived as it was, always made me 
reminded me of the Isle of Dr. Moreau. Do you oh, remember sure. that? Oh, yeah, sure. so very much, you know, the, the human morphing with an animal and, you know, doing, you know, evil science. So <laughs> I was you know, always, always impressed by, you know, McCorkendale's abilities to, you know, as a, yeah, because he would put, he would get put into situations to save people or rescue diamonds. Or I just remember vague bits and pieces of that show. And him, he was very suave, very debonair, very sophisticated, and he could turn into um, any animal, which is quite the superhero <laughs> ability, not necessarily yeah. fully practical. You know, yeah. he's not quite Green Lantern, who, who has yeah. a lot more clout, but, you know, I don't know about turning to a snake to slither away. is uh, going to be the the best escape mechanism, so. Yeah. <laughs> it was only eight episodes, that's all. I wow. Uh, and I Oh, and, and here, this is how my brain works. We, for whatever reason, it jarred loose the word I was trying to think of for uh, Dukes of oh, Hazard. The Duke boys were on probation. On that's, pro that's right. Yeah, so yeah, they, they couldn't were on probation leave. for how many years and how many seasons? I, yeah, but that that was that gave a couple of cool things to the show. It was like, right. oh, okay, they can't cross county lines. So we got that. Right. They can't use guns. We'll give them bow and arrow. So, right, because of probation, because right. of moon right. ru moonshine running. So. Right. So so obviously that also ties into that thematic of really nonviolence, basically, yes. but uh, yeah. giving them some tools to protect themselves, but not to be ultra violent and have you know because they got into plenty of fistfights. Thrown yeah. over cameras, throwing <laughs> other guys over cameras, yeah. but never actually putting anyone down for the count. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Manimal was one I wanted to touch on because that was yeah, one that I think. Boy, I think man, they, there wasn't like as a kid. I just remember thinking this is amazing, and then it was it came and went. It but, was um, came and went before we probably even realized because you know pre-internet days, we're not going to know necessarily what happened unless we don't see it in a magazine or right. a yeah. newspaper saying show cancel after only, you know, five episodes, we wouldn't know what exactly happened. We would just go on with our lives to the next show. <laughs> right. But that's really fun. I haven't heard the term manimal in a very long time. That's <laughs> great. Good, good reference yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. Is there any, were there any others you wanted to touch on? Are we good? I, I think we're good. I mean, those were, those were the, the initial ones I wanted to get out there in, in the marketplace, but it has also opened doors on my research of these shows to future episodes where we can look at other ones in the sim same vein, but also, like you said, focusing more on 80s drama, perhaps, in our future. Uh, yes. Sitcoms, you know, the 80s was rife with a lot of good quality stuff, as you mentioned at the beginning uh, of the episode here, that will give us plenty of food for thought to kind of examine uh, different approaches on how we want to, um, you know, sectionalize some of our future discussions on, you know, other shows that kind of, emblazoned who we are as uh, as adults today absolutely yeah all right well uh thank you listeners as always for joining us thank you to my friend brad for being here i'll let you go watch your your footy yes <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy the rest of your sunday uh so yep thank you very much brad thank you listeners and uh this is ian clark signing off for brad anderson and saying that uh i don't know about you guys but i love it when a plan comes together dun, 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 dun. <laughs>